Hello, everyone. Welcome to Then Again, the podcast from the Northeast Georgia History Center. We have a great and requested topic today. We are going to speaking with Mr. Tom Oakey from Kennesaw State University. Dr. Oakey, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Can you tell us just a little bit about uh, yourself and your areas of interest in research and, and how Georgia agriculture came to be something that interested you? Well, sure. I'm a, I'm a uh, professor at Kennesaw State University on, on the other side of Atlanta from y'all. And uh, I, I do history education here mostly, so I work with future history teachers. Um, but my area of research is agricultural and environmental history. And my first book was called The Georgia Peach Culture, Agriculture, and Environment in the American South that came out in 2016, so a few years ago. And um, I guess I got interested in that for two reasons. One, uh, the most obvious reason is that I grew up in middle Georgia, pretty close to the Peach Belt in Warner Robins. Uh, my father was a research scientist for the USDA in Byron, which is in Peach County, the county that was named, of course, for production of Georgia peaches back in the 1920s. So that was just kind of all around me. And then I had an experience where I, where I lived in Honduras for a year, and I, I really saw agriculture, kind of subsistence ag- agriculture up close. And I realized that agriculture and agricultural policy really, really made a difference. Um, and so then I started to think about my home, uh, my upbringing, and, and what I saw around me. And when I decided I wanted to study history, I thought, well, there's not really a better topic um, for me than, than the Georgia peach. No one um, had written a book-length treatment of, of the, the history of the Georgia peach industry. And so it just it seemed like a, it, was, uh, it was low-hanging fruit. As, <laughs> That's a good uh, one. Yes, right. <laughs> Oh, well, well, fantastic. So, you know, for, for our, our listeners all over the world, peaches in Georgia, the Georgia peach is sort of like our ideal. Uh, it's what we're known for. We make pretty good peaches here. It's the it's the state fruit, right? It's the state fruit. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's, peaches are, are not native to North America at all. They're, they're native to China, passed into Europe via the Silk Road, and then I think first landed in North America in the 16th century, probably around St. Augustine, Florida, um, with, with Spanish Jesuits. Uh, but then very quickly, peaches became pretty widespread around here, actually all up and down the East Coast. And, and then um, through Spanish settlement in the Southwest as well. There's there's some interesting stories about Navajo peach growing, um, for example, that I didn't get into at all in the book. But um, wow. it's a, it's a really we we claim the George the peach in Georgia, but it's it's a much much more of a cosmopolitan fruit than uh, than we sometimes think. Well, don't tell people that. Um, <laughs> so as far as as peaches in Georgia go, is that was the peach developed always as less of a, sub, a subsistence crop and more of a, a cash crop or, or a way to make to grow something that folks could could sell and make money with? So there was a, an important historical shift in peach production. So sort of time out of mind, people kept some peaches. A- any farmer would have a few peach trees. Um, they they may have eaten a few fresh fruits. They would. Um, Native Americans did a lot of drying of, of peaches uh, and using them that way. They would also uh, forage their hogs under peach trees. So peach trees drop a lot of fruit and the hogs would eat the fruit. And then you have, you know, peach finished hog flesh, which I guess is, is tastier. Uh, and then they made some um, alcoholic beverages like cider and brandy. So that was kind of, that was the everyday peach. It was very much like an apple. Like like, we, like a lot of us maybe think of apples, just kind of like you, everybody had a few, a few trees, maybe even a few acres of trees. And it was used in those ways. So in the 1850s, that shifted in a big way with a couple of things. One was the introduction of a of a new variety called the Chinese Kling, which came came from China, and it was a 
a large yellow fleshed, very firm peach that ended up producing a couple of other varieties. The Alberta is the most famous that became this a, a kind of universal commercial peach variety, sort of like the Red Delicious Apple. So that was that was shippable. And then, of course, the other thing that was happening at the same time was you, you had transportation networks that were getting more reliable and faster. And then refrigeration came along in the late 19th century, pioneered by the, the meat packers up in Chicago. And that made it possible to, to get a bunch of Georgia peaches uh, or South Carolina peaches a little bit later from a hot July orchard to a market in New York City or Philadelphia in a matter of days. So that's that's really kind of what made the Georgia peaches reputation. It was that that confluence of events in the late 19th century. So as far as it becoming a product that's very popular with, you know, with Georgia and from Georgia, um, do you go into your book at all how that happened from a from a weather from a topographical perspective from a soil perspective i mean how did it end up that georgia happens to and and i guess south carolina happens to just make peaches like no one else can if you talk to somebody from colorado see michigan or new mexico you might you, you might hear a different story about who can make good peaches but <laughs> but part of it, it's a historical reason right so there's all those technological reasons i was i was describing there topographically and climatically um, at that time, peaches, like a lot of other fruits, they need a certain number of cold weather hours in the wintertime in order to produce fruit. And so around, at that time, around middle Georgia, around Fort, Fort Valley, that was kind of the lowest, lowest latitude where you could produce, reliably produce peaches in the, on the eastern coast. So that meant that Georgia had the very earliest peaches, which always get the highest prices in the biggest markets like New York and Philadelphia and Boston. So those East Coast markets, you know, huge population centers at that time, especially, and Georgia peaches were the first ones in the market. And if you can, I always like to think of, you know, a, a New York City apartment dweller, just not really having a lot of fresh food for a lot of the winter. Um, and then in June, maybe even May, these big Georgia peaches start coming in. And um, it's, that feels exciting. Right? If you look at Old New York newspapers. There's a there's always a section on on the markets, and they 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 talk about oh the Georgia peaches are coming in, and it's um you know, you have the feeling that people are just going out and, and buying them as soon as they roll into the city. So so Georgia peaches definitely not, not only as a as an agricultural product, but they began to take on this um, mythological cultural resonance, right, uh, all around the country. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there is a there's kind of a global mythological resonance with peaches. I mean, there's a there's a Chinese tradition of, of associating them with, them with long life and that sort of thing. Um, but in the story that I tell in the book, this there's something specific about what's happening in the United States at the time. Um, and that's that the South is undergoing this, this attempt to kind of remake itself. You probably have heard of Henry Grady and the sort of New South campaigns to, to, to sort of separate the South from the South of plantations and slavery and cotton. And peaches are like a, they're kind of a perfect vehicle to, to culturally articulate that separation because they're, they require some capital to produce. So they're not, they're not, an, they're not a crop that any any poor person, any poor dirt farmer can grow, unlike cotton. They don't have the same association with sharecropping or or before that with slave labor. They are dependent on that labor in an interesting way. But 
popularly, they don't have the same association. So it's kind of this, it's a perfect crop for the, for the new South. And that continues on, right? Like you say, there, there are ads in New York papers sort of advertising that. And I'm sure that, you know, local and state chambers of commerce really, really push that too. And I, I know I have in my collection, a piece of, you know, sheet music from World War One that's everything is peaches down in Georgia. Yeah. I love that song. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was actually the title, my working title for the book. And Oh, um, neat. <laughs> I still think it's a good title for a book, but you know, the Georgia peach, that sounds definitive and everything. Right. It's, it's got the, it's got everything in there. Yeah. It's got the name, um, <laughs> but yeah. So there's a lot of white femininity, right. As the, to talk about Georgia peaches with her, with her blushing pe- uh, cheeks and that sort of thing. Interestingly, and I don't go into a lot of detail here, but your race is a really important part of the story in several ways. But there are reports of, I think it's the Chicago Defender in the early 20th century, when they're, they're talking about like African-American women getting together for social gatherings or something like that. And they'll identify people from Georgia, African-American women from Georgia as Georgia peaches. So there's, it's it's not a strictly white fruit, but but in terms of the of how it worked out in terms of ag- agricultural production, it was it was hard for African American farmers to get into peaches for uh, several different reasons. And the the irony, of course, is that peach growing really depended on this kind of cotton labor force. So no one, you know, Georgia still produces more cotton than than peaches. Um, last I checked, we were like number two in cotton production in the country um, after Texas. So, that, so that there was never really a move away from cotton. I mean, peaches became an important secondary crop in some areas, uh, but never really challenged cotton, despite all this rhetoric about queen peach dethroning king cotton at the time. And that was, that was in part because produced peaches were one of the most important pieces of, of agricultural, agricultural production of, of the fruit is is harvest labor, right? You have a fruit that that can't be machine harvested. So it requires people in the fields judging how ripe it is and putting them in bags, right? It's a very manual process. And as long as cotton was also manual, there was a kind of dovetailing of the two crop regimes. You had, uh, you would, let's see, spring peaches, very early spring or January, February, plant cotton, uh, thin peaches, and then chop cotton and then harvest peaches and then harvest cotton. So there's this for large landowners, they would use kind of the same labor force for both crops. So like literally the same labor force, like the same group of people are going to be working on peaches one week. And then the next week they're going to be working on the, on the cotton crop. Yeah. And in some cases, and then the other thing that happened is because, you know, a lot what, what happens to the labor force slowly post post-slavery, post-emancipation is it, it kind of, it becomes more contract labor. People kind of move farther and farther away from the plantation, right? But peaches had this effect of kind of drawing people in from outlying areas. At one time, I thought of it as kind of like a, like a tidal flow, like peaches, peaches sort of bring people in from miles away sometimes. And then um, when the harvest is over, they, they would leave. And depending on your region, I mean, in, in the cotton belt, that's, it's almost entirely African-American labor in the fields. Up around Gainesville, there's a lot more sort of um, upland white labor. These are typically peach growers are paying cash. And if you think about your agricultural cycles, July is about when, if you're dependent on cotton as a, as a cash crop, July is you're at the very end of your, whatever money you made last year, right? Right. Um, so for someone someone to be paying cash in this in a very cash poor place, it was a it was kind of a desirable job only because the other options were, were either non-existent or 
or worse. But that's that was a really big part of of why peaches became a, a viable crop in the South was, was that you had this kind of low wage available labor force. So with with peaches, you have a a labor force that's seasonal, but there are other things that they can work on, and it's a and it's a product that is loved and adored everywhere. What kind of we all love to just go eat a real peach, right? It, and it tastes good just the way it is. But but how much of of peach production is driven towards, for lack of a better word, the derivatives? I mean, you know, there's peaches, there's peach pie, there's peach cobbler. Does that all sort of fit together or are there different cultural things that go with each one of those products? Well, I'm not sure about about the cultural dynamics of the, of the products. I, I will say that one of the challenges for really establishing a crops like peaches, I mean, the, originally the people who were boosting peaches were also boosting things like, like plums and apples and pears and blackberries and asparagus, right? All these alternative crops. Um, and if you think about California for a minute, I mean, California was able to to grow a lot of different crops. And so for them, you had a you had two things: you had a seasonal a seasonal labor force that could be year round. So you can work in in fruit picking in California all year round because of the ver- all the, the variety of crops that were there. And that wasn't true in, in the southeast. Um, the other thing is that for processing facilities, um, what makes a canning facility profitable is is having a constant flow of product. And so if you only have peaches, then you're canning stuff or you're freezing stuff for for a couple of months out of the year, and then all of your capital is lying dormant, being unused for 10, 10 or nine, 9 or 10 months out of the year. So there were some efforts to, I mean, there was something called Raggedy Ripe Canned Peaches um, that was a local a local brand. Uh, there was, there was short-lived like frozen peach um, experiments uh, in the South, but most of the pr- peach processing now is California-based. I think California grows about half the country's peaches and maybe half again of those peaches are grown for the, for the processing market. Wow. Okay. So, so I guess, you know, to that question or, or to that statement, most of the, so half the peaches produced are processed and the other half probably are delivered as as fruit uh, in California, in, in Georgia California. and South Carolina, no one produces canning peaches, as far as I know, because <laughs> we got the real thing, man. Um, <laughs> I know you, you said that you are teaching history education. That's something that you focus on there at Kennesaw mm-hmm. State, and I may be taking you down a, a weird pathway, but but surely you found ways to incorporate the story of the Georgia peach into history education as as maybe an ex- example of you know labor questions and marketing questions and and. Uh, environmental change and things like that. So what are some of the ways that folks can understand Georgia peaches and some of those larger concepts like that, especially when they're looking at, you know, using peach production and the story of the peach in Georgia specifically as sort of an example of other larger things. And I'm not trying to put the entire world into a fruit, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm sure there are ways that that you can sort of move that along. Thinking about labor um, is one of the big things that that doing this project taught me to, taught me to do. Um, sometimes farming stories can be told as like a, a simple matter of matching a crop to its climate, um, but the peach story is is shows that that there also has to be kind of a social matching between the crop. Like like a crop has social needs as well as environmental needs, right? It, ha- it needs to have the systems and the people and the political economy in place for it to be a viable commercial crop. I guess though the other thing I would say this may be taking in a slightly different direction than we're thinking when you ask the question but it, one of the one of the things that came to my mind as I was working on this book one of the opening scenes of one of the chapters is I remember growing up and 
driving around the state and uh, my father pulling the car over and getting out some flagging tape and and like flagging a fruit tree on the side of the road. Usually he was, usually these were plums actually, because he was working on developing some plum varieties that could work for the Southeast. So he was looking at native plum germplasm, basically thinking about what kinds of plum genetics would uh, allow for a crop, a, a profitable crop to be grown uh, in the Southeast. But th- that that sort of image of paying attention to the vegetation that's just kind of maybe kind of trashy and maybe overlooked on the side of the road is something I, I think about a lot now, both both in my research and in my teaching, like trying to help students to see that vegetation is historical, I guess. That, yeah, that plants, no, that makes plants sense. have this kind of, you know, there's a reason why there's all these seedling peaches all around the uh, the state of Georgia. If you're, if you, you'll probably only notice them in this, in the early spring when they're in bloom, but they're, they're all over the place. Um, and that's, and that's, it's part of this whole history, right. That I've been, I've been talking about. Same thing is true for a variety of, of sort of roadside or common plants. So there's a, you know, there's an environmental tradition of seeing those things as, as part of your local ecology. And what I'm trying to, to do is help students see them as part of their, part of the history too, right. They, these, they have stories behind them. Right. No, that's a, that is an excellent point that everything has a story and it, and it sounds like you've told a great one and you, with your work, you also look at environmental concerns. I mean, this is, you know, in terms of sustainability, we know, well, uh, people should know that the cotton drains the soil that it's, you know, it's an important crop, but it is not very environmentally sustainable with the different soil types and everything. Are, are peaches, uh, even when we start getting into larger orchards, are the, is that a pretty sustainable type of crop? I mean, uh, there's so many different dimensions about about within sustainability that you, that you could talk about. Right now, peach growing in the southeast depends on a labor force that comes mostly from Mexico. That's only sustainable because the federal government has this guest worker program uh, and because Mexican wage rates are low. Right. So there's right. so that's there's there's a kind of unsustainable piece of it there. Peaches are you know you you plow a lot less when you're growing peaches. I think uh, farmers are plowing cotton less too, as they they increasingly use herbicides to prepare the ground. But peaches require a lot of chemicals to grow in the southeast. Just anecdotally, a farmer was growing organic peaches in South Carolina, and he said that they lost 50% of their crop at least every year growing organic peaches. Wow! So, so it was it was pretty tough to make a to make a profit on organic fruit. That's you know it's different than California. We have a very buggy climate, hot and humid, and that makes it hard to grow things without without using a lot of a lot of chemicals right so well, it's sustainable the, i guess the other thing i would say is that, is that it also depends on this wide distribution network peaches are only i think they're only really good when they're pretty close to the tree right you know like they haven't been off the tree very long so that's why why roadside stand peaches are often a lot better than grocery store peaches for for an industry commercial industry you need you need a lot of consumers who are not all in your local area so you need a, a widespread distribution network. You're not a local peach industry is not going to be very big. So I don't know there's there's a lot of different dimensions there. I, I'm I'm probably rambling at this point, but you've written the book and it's uh and people can get it on Amazon. They can check it out and it sort of made you the expert on on Georgia peaches in history. So the I guess the the big question to ask is what is your favorite way to consume a peach and can you do it without overthinking it? I I am I'm ruined for life. Uh, in terms of, <laughs> uh, I told, I, I've, I've taught a food class and I tell my students the same thing. I'm like, part of what's going to happen with this class is that it's going to mess up your, your, your eating. Like you're going <laughs> to, 
I, I hope in good ways too, but it's, it's going to make it a lot less simple for you. Uh, I, I love like a really fresh from the tree peach, just, just kind of straight. I mean, I wash it, try to rub a little bit of the fuzz off, but just, I, I like eating it outside. The juice drips down my face and on my shirt. Um, you know, that's, there are some, there are some great peach recipes, but that's my, my favorite way to eat a peach. Well, that does sound like the best way to me. Uh, Dr. Oki, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really good insight. I think it's going to help people understand a little bit more about the state's favorite fruit and its role. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thanks so much for having me. Keep up the good work at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Thank you. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.